this will be my ongoing confession. Do I feel guilty? In a way, yes. Do I feel guilty in the way you might feel guilty if you would have killed someone? Not yet, but that may still come. There's that, and there's the cynical notion that everyone gets caught eventually. What might be long dead of old age or revenge by the time it happens, but somebody will find out. I want there to be a record somewhere of what transpired, something written as it's happening, so that you'll know it's not a story spun later to save our collective asses from the electric chair. I want you innocents to understand, in real time, how a man becomes a serial killer. It's so much harder and so much easier than you will ever comprehend. The cops have one thing right. It begins with a motive. Unless you're a nutjob, one person does not kill another person without a reason. Hell, I can't even get to the gym without proper motivation, so the thought of murdering nonsensically just seems insane. Of course, I do go to the gym because I do have proper motivation, and we have murdered on that same principle. In fact, it all started with a question of principle. There were three of us, still nursing beers after everyone else had gone home. We sat there in the rear of the bar, commiserating over shit jobs. We would just have to go back to the next morning. This confession is for me, not for our joke of a justice system. So I'll call my table mates that night, Jake and Tom. I didn't know them well, but that was part of how all this began. Staring down at his beer, Jake asked, you hear about that kid who got off jail from killing people because he had affluenza? Tom nodded along with his words. <laughs> Assholes are above the law. I was fairly drunk and extremely in agreement, so I said, Shit like that is how mob justice starts. Wish I could get some mob justice where I work, Jake muttered. My boss straight up steals from us, messes with the system to change our hours worked, Caught him with his hand in my jacket pocket in the back room once. But there's not shit I can do about it. If I call the cops, he'll just tell them I'm a thief and I'll go to prison. <laughs> Game over, man. Hunched low from drunkness, Tom stared up from over his beer. Somebody should beat that guy's ass. Send him a message. Weasels like that wise up real quick. It'd be nice, I added. Jake's gaze went dangerously distant. In a low and hate-filled voice, he said, So let's do it. What? Come on, we're not serious. I am. We'll do it like that movie. You guys beat up my boss, and I'll do yours. Silence fell over the table as Tom and I stared at him. He may have been beer-talking, but he looked deadly serious. After a moment, I said, wait, no, you think they won't figure that out? Three random managers get beaten up and their employees are connected? I don't know you, Jake shot back, his eyes hard. We're not Facebook friends, I don't fucking tweet. I've run into you twice at random parties hosted by other people. We have no connection. At least not any they'll see. Did you pay with a credit card at this bar? I asked, while Tom stared in fear at both of us. Not yet. I'll pay cash. You both pay cash. And let's do this. 
he didn't sound overly drunk or even mildly crazy. The more we worked through the details, the more the prospect of having my boss getting what was coming to him actually began to sound appealing. More than that, I would get a chance to assault someone else's asshole boss, take out a little frustration, send a message. But we couldn't actually get away with this. Could we? Research. Tom interrupted meekly. We both looked at him and waited. He sat a little taller in his chair and spoke quietly. We watch every episode of CSI. We Google it. On computers at the library, I interjected. And no checking out books. No record. Right. Tom leaned closer to us. We don't make any decisions until we know everything there is to know about pulling off a crime like this. It has to be airtight. Jake nodded along with us, and a slow grin spread across his face. I knew there was a reason I liked you two. Shake on it. Research. His voice went low. And we'll meet at the bar down the street in three weeks. Friday, 8 p.m. It'll be crowded, and nobody will recognize or remember us. Flanagan's? Tom asked. No, the other direction. The sports pub. Yeah, that one. My pulse raced to a roar in my ears. Was this actually going to happen? Maybe not, but it was at least nice to fantasize. Friday, 8 p.m. three weeks from now. Shake on it, Jake said again. And we did. You see, that's the first step towards serial murder. Co-conspirators. They can't just be anybody. You have to understand their ideologies. You have to know why they'll actually do this with you, even if you don't truly know the men themselves. No one can ever really know another human being, really, but ideologies run strong, deep, and furious. No man has ever killed another without an ideology involved. We remind each other to be smart, and we parted ways. I went home and almost littered up CSI on my Netflix. I stopped myself short. How suspicious would it be if I binge-watched all of these just before my boss got beaten up with no trace of forensic evidence left behind? And besides, Netflix only had shitty spin-offs. I could watch it at the library, but no, that would mean hundreds of hours just sitting there. I'd be remembered, and they might keep a log of traffic. How could one watch a show without leaving a record? And then it hit me. DVDs. I went every rundown video and DVD store in the city and paid cash for every crime-related show I could find. Then, each night after work, I got down to it. While the shows played, I wrote notes, and trips to different libraries later filled me in on what was real and what was bullshit. Turns out, most of these shows are a crock, but they gave me the right keywords, and my research began in earnest. Most of all, I found a Reddit thread where someone, for the sake of argument, detailed everything needed to get away with a murder in a tremendously long post that had received multiple golds. We only intended on a beating, but the advice still applied. I learned quite a bit from that spiel. It turned out that the solve rate for most crimes these days was still abysmal and that the police were more concerned with robbing the citizenry these days than catching gangbangers. 
Our intended targets weren't poor, so there would be an investigation, but it would be easy enough to make the case a difficult one. Difficult cases were often quickly abandoned. We just had to make sure to leave no DNA, no good description, and painful but not highly visible wounds. The last rule was part of the media theory of the crime. Without a good picture that evokes the emotions, there's no story to tell. Without a story, the media doesn't pick up on it, and nobody gives a shit. The crime fades away as if it never happened. The Big Friday approached the same as any other day, but my stress was off the charts. It was all I could do to maintain the outward appearance of normality. I walked into that bar half an hour early, expecting to see cops setting up for a sting operation, but there were only a few scattered families eating wings and burgers at various tables. My two co-conspirators sat in the far back section. They, too, had arrived early. At first, we hunched over and whispered to each other about all that we'd learned over the past few weeks, but we quickly realized that our secret behavior made us look suspicious. Relaxing, we took on the nonchalant manner of the families around us. It was then that Jake said, We do Tom's boss first. I frowned. How did you decide that? Think about it, our most determined member explained, looking over at Tom as he spoke. I'm the angriest of us, clearly. We leave my boss for last, because I'll make sure it happens. Agreed? We nodded. Good. Then on that same logic... In reverse, Tom is the meekest of us three. Tom shrugged sheepishly. I, I, I'm i still in, though. I, I know you are, buddy. That still means we flip the logic around. Your boss is first. Us two will handle it. Best you don't know the details, except the time you'll need an alibi. We'll let you know. I nodded, but gulped. Jake and I were really going to do this. We paid cash and went our separate ways after exchanging burner phone numbers. Jake had bought an old junker car with cash, and we now used it to drive around Tom's business at intervals to check things out. He told us the man's schedule as it related to work, and we began compiling his other habits. While Jake's intensity subtly put me off, Tom's well-addressed boss wore a perpetual scowl of contempt that primarily engaged me in our plan to teach him a lesson. As we watched through the windows of the building, the man simply oozed prickishness. At times, we actually saw him screaming red-faced at Tom, who just lowered his head and took the abuse. We chose a night two days before a holiday party. The party would have been an ideal time to catch well-dressed prick alone and likely drunk at abnormally late hours, and avoiding that opportunity was exactly how we would divert suspicion away from Tom. If it had been one of the employees, the police would reason, surely, they could have chosen a more opportune night. I still didn't really believe we were actually going to do it. It was fun, owning our own capability for violence in a way society usually forced to suppress. It was fulfilling, in some strange animal way, to realize and entertain the fact that we actually had the power to change things directly. All the money and laws in the world couldn't stop a few determined men from exacting justice, and that thought was immensely and strangely freeing. Of course, we weren't really going to do this. The legal system would take everything from us while defending the behavior of well-dressed prick with a fury. But, that last night outside Tom's office building, Jake 
donned his mask and slipped out of the car when the moment came. I freaked. I did slip my mask on too, but I ran after to stop him. This was an insane idea, and I should have known Jake was angry enough to actually take that deranged step off society's allowed paths. I remember gray hair. That close, the older man had streaks of gray hair I hadn't noticed before. Thing is, he turned and saw two masked men running at him full speed in the night. And he didn't get scared. He just sneered and began to say something condescending. Thinking back on it now, I can see how it might have been a show. False confidence or his form of bravery. But my inner disgust flared and I slowed. Jake pushed him hard with gloved hands and well-dressed prick fell backwards, hit his head on the cement sidewalk, and lay twitching. I asked the horrified obvious. He can't be dead, can he? Just like that? He is, Jake breathed. Shit. What do we do? I asked, fighting down panic. We were out of sight of the two cameras that watched the other side of the building, but we were still exposed to the dark side of the street that anyone could drive by. The plan had been to hit him a few times, steal his wallet, make it look like a mugging, and then run. Snapping out of the shock and back into determination, Jake shook his head. Nothing. He pointed down. He fell in his head. There's literally no evidence on him that we even exist. What if he's not dead? What if he's not dead? What if he wakes up? A horrible smell wafted up from him as we stood staring down. Jake moved back. Smell that? He's dead. He was right. I'd seen it on numerous episodes. The man's bowels had evacuated at the moment of his death. There was nothing to do but get in the car and go. For a time, I lived in agonizing fear that the cops would bust down my door, arrest me, and parade me in front of the entire neighborhood. But Tom reported back to us a week later at a new bar. The death of his boss had been considered a tragic accident, and he himself had been promoted. It had all worked out immensely better than we could have ever hoped. I was ready to be done, honestly. We killed a man. No message had been sent. That smug asshole had never known a moment of fear or regret for his actions. We just completely eliminated him. Too, I wondered if he had a family. The basic stress inside me could not be mitigated. I'd never witnessed death firsthand, let alone helped cause it. I could only console myself by believing that any man who treated his employees like he had was probably also abusive toward his family, but there was no real way of knowing that. We'd screwed up and gone way too far. I was going to tell them I was done. It was Jake, though, that grew darker and more determined. We're all locked in this now, he said quietly and fiercely, his knuckles white around his beer glass. He looked directly at me. Your boss is next. 
I should have known that was coming. Having lived my entire life before that point in a sea of pointlessness and protection, I simply couldn't recognize the face of a true sociopath. Even when he was sitting right in front of me. I had the obvious crisis any civilized person might for days. I agonized over whether to warn my boss that she was about to be brutally assaulted by my partners in crime. Despite numerous rationalizations, excuses, and mental playback of the death of the well-dressed prick, some part of me knew something would happen this time, too. Somehow or another, she would end up dead if the attack went through. It was a premonition I couldn't shake and I downed coffee after coffee while debating what to do. At one time, I had liked and respected her. She'd been incredibly convincing. She was a single mom with five kids, and we'd had a drink at my first office Christmas party. In that late, private hour, we talked like normal people. She told me about her struggles and stress, and I would believed her. That conversation remained with me as an internal excuse for her behavior for the next several years. There were constant requests for unpaid time, extra work, or favors. I did all these with a sense of pride for what man could refuse a woman in such need. I felt like we were a secret team, like I had a responsibility greater than those co-workers held. Of course, it felt a little weird when a new intern quit because of all the extra unpaid work. I hadn't seen any of that. And I wondered, was she asking him for favors too? Had it somehow been kept secret from me? My confusion turned to bitter fury when I decided to leave at nine at night instead of staying until my extra work was done. I didn't go home. I visited a few bars she'd mentioned over the years, and at the fifth and final one, I found her. I sat in my car and watched through the windows of the place. It was a high-class establishment, and she stood laughing with a few girlfriends, a dainty drink in hand. Her dress was form-fitting and fantastic. This was not at all the tired and stressed single mom I'd been sold. It might have been crossing the line, but I knew her address for mail at work, and I drove by her place while she was out. The lights were on, and someone was home. The door swung open a minute later to reveal a haggard 30-something man and a cluster of screaming, boisterous children. Can I help you? Oh, I'm sorry, I told him. I was looking for lying bitch. She told me to bring her some documents for tomorrow's presentation. She's not here, he replied with a sigh. She's at work until late again. I could have told him then but I didn't think it was my place at the time. Instead, I made polite small talk until the truth came out. These were his kids. He'd been a single father of five after their mother had died, and lying bitch was supposed to be stable and hard-working new wife that I later noted had come right after a large life insurance settlement. Once I knew, her lies unraveled daily. At every single claim she made, I dug a little deeper and found that she literally 
did no work in any area of her life. Her dynasty was an invisible pyramid of secret overtime and personal favors. Each man was separated from the others to ensure nobody would ever put two and two together. Her home life was non-existent. She drank, partied, and went home with strangers under the guise of working late hours to support her new family. And she utterly despised me once I slowly stopped accepting her request. Rumors began circulating about me at the office. A promotion passed me over, and I kept ending up at the worst projects. She never said a single word to me directly, and the old me, with the wool over his eyes, would have just chalked it up to bad luck, but I knew. This woman was a demon of lies that sucked the life out of everyone around her. But, did she deserve to die? Nothing she'd done was illegal in the strictest sense, and I could certainly destroy her life simply by shedding light on her pyramid of lies, but there were consequences to consider. First, that she had no real skills other than manipulation. If her life was torn to shreds, how would she support herself? Would she go through the long and arduous process of self-discovery and learning to stand on her own two feet? Or would she just spin a new web? Second, she could likely take me down with her. There would be no hiding my identity if I approached the multiple people, include the men. I might even come off as a strange stalker. As the days wore on and on, Tom and Jake observed her and began putting together a plan. I felt the decision slowly being made for me. If I was to spare her this fate, I needed to choose. The day of the planned assault a direct conversation felt in order. I entered her office with a binder casually in my hand. Hey, lying bitch, mind if we talk? Sure, she said with a smile that I knew was fake, but which was otherwise perfect. Sit. I sat. She leaned forward slightly. What's up? Approaching what was really on my mind in a roundabout way, I said... I noticed I've been sort of stagnating where I'm at. My performance reviews haven't been very good, so I've been wondering if there's anything else I can do to get back on top. Sighing, she leaned back against the chair. I didn't want to say anything, but you haven't exactly been a team player lately. People are starting to talk about it. Suppressing the inner rush of anger, I put on a politely confused face. Really? What's the problem? I've done everything officially asked of me. Uh, A real workplace is a bit more than official, she explained. Official projects are just the minimum to get by. To really be a part of the team, you have to take on more than just the minimum. I faked my best understanding nod. I was doing that my first few years here. You were, she responded, leaning forward again. What changed? I couldn't help it. When I was working unpaid overtime one night, I went home to get something and I saw your car at a bar. You were in there drinking. To her credit, her face didn't twitch a bit. What I do in my personal time is none of your business. I hope that's all you did, or I'll have no qualms about informing HR that you're harassing me. Harassing you? My anger mixed with amusement. 
She was an expert predator in the ecosystem in which she had evolved. But I had a secret advantage. Real violence cut through bullshit red tape and pathetic reputation games. Not at all, lying bitch. I just happen to know what really goes on here. I've run into other guys doing unpaid overtime, which is against company policy, by the way, and I even ran into your husband at the grocery store. Many things you say don't add up. Her mask finally fell away. And I saw pure evil there. She stood, came around to her desk, and stood above me with new flared eyes. Fine. Dispense with the games. What do you want for your silence? Money? A promotion? Sex? I stood up in disgust. Seriously? I stood very slowly and moved toward her door, though my instincts told me leaving without making a deal was an extremely dangerous idea. The kind of person that lying bitch truly was seemed to run on amoral manipulation and exchanges. She was rather attractive, but something about that opinion felt objectively wrong. A promotion would have been nice, but that would have just put me deeper under her thumb. Money. She lifted slightly, relieved in her own special way that I was playing ball. How much? What number seemed reasonable? $10,000. She didn't flinch. Had my number been perfect, or should I have asked for more? Reaching down, she picked up the phone, and I watched as she faked perfect distress for her husband about a sudden financial need. I could hear his confusion, hurt, and despair on the other side of the phone, but he did agree, and she hung up with a smile. You'll have your money tomorrow. I expect you'll keep your mouth shut. I will, I said quietly, my decision made. It was my turn to go to the bar. Inviting out a few colleagues from work, we sat, drank, and commiserated over the endless hours working with little rewards under lying bitch. None outright revealed what she was doing to each of them. I marveled at how well our culture had trained us to be polite and loyal to a point of self-enslavement. These were decent men, good men. They deserved to be free and treated with respect. Fancying myself their secret liberator for... In many ways, I was. I soared high on the power of life and death. I was hilarious, compassionate, and the center of attention. I was no longer beat down, frustrated, and stressed. They could sense it. Determined to make my positivity infectious, I grew ever more boisterous and over the top, and we ended the night by invading a karaoke bar and having the best office outing of all time. We slunk back into work the next morning, exhausted and haggard, for not one of us had gone home. We'd greeted the sunrise at a diner, ate waffles and pancakes, and headed into the office as a caravan of still-drunk fools intent on facing the music together. But the music never came, and neither did Lying Bitch. Around noon, we had ample time to up coffee and down painkillers. The regional VP arrived with a grief counselor in tow. It seemed that lying bitch had accidentally driven herself over the corner of a nearby bridge on the way home. The VP did not mention that she'd been drinking at a bar. It was a tragic accident. The company would make sure to take care of her family, and most importantly, we all had the day off. 
I drifted home and lay on the couch as the hours blurred together. Part of me was triumphant and grinning unseen, but part of me was horrified that I'd been right. The planned beating had instead ended in death a second time. I wasn't going to be meeting with Tom and Jake for another three weeks, but I knew I would be demanding the full story of what happened from them. How did roughing someone up turn into driving them off a bridge? At the time, I still felt guilt. That gnawing chill compelled me to return to her husband's house, and I stood at the door and offered my condolences. He gravely accepted them, but he also seemed relieved and rested. Behind him, I saw Nanny taking care of the kids, and I understood. Either the company benefits or a second life insurance payout had rescued this family from the hole their embezzling new mother figure had dug underneath them. Free of guilt, I took my leave. Death had not been a tragedy for anyone in that woman's life. Violence had spiked in out of the wilds of human experience with surgical aim and removed a tumor that had grown of the suffocating structure of rules and customs we collectively built in a vain attempt to keep out the dangers of nature. Rather than protection, we built only a framework for imprisonment and parasites. There was something bigger in what Tom, Jake, and I were doing. I had to think on it. The weeks rolled by as I dealt with the intense stress and let it flow out of me. I was given her old job. After that grand night out, the guys universally threw their support behind me to replace her, and the regional VP couldn't give a shit either way. I was in, and I found it strange that twice death had been rewarded with immediately increased status. The structure we lived in was cold and impersonal to the extreme. Without the need for the staff to secretly and constantly overwork, our office productivity and morale rose significantly. Actually doing my job made it easier for my men to do theirs. What a concept. By the time my meeting with Tom and Jake approached, I had nothing but contempt for the memory of lying bitch. But I still wanted to know what happened. Beers in hand, we sat at the back of the new hole-in-the-wall bar, and Tom explained. Well, we caught her outside, and alone as planned, but she managed to rip off both of our ski masks. Once she saw our faces, we knew we were in trouble, and she was a vicious biter. One thing led to another, she got knocked out pretty hard. Jake said we had to get rid of her since she'd seen our faces, and we came up with a plan to drive her off a bridge. We didn't want to do it. It just got out of hand. It made sense, at least in our already twisted perspectives. Jake simply nodding along to this explanation, his expression neutral. I watched his face as Tom spoke, but not a single reaction was evident. At that point, I was beginning to suspect something darker, but I was still enamored of our new strength. It was also our turn to assault Jake's boss. The quiet and calm threat in our companion's eyes brooked no argument. It was up to Tom and I to make it happen, and I honestly thought I'd have the chance to make this third attack not end in murder. I also honestly thought it would be the last.
For the first time, Tom and I were together without Jake. I tried to come up with a nonchalant way to ask, but as we sat outside Jake's factory and watched his boss with binoculars, I realized there would be no hiding my concern. It was better to be direct. So, how did you guys end up having to kill Lying Bitch exactly? Uh, we already went over that, Tom replied. He took a bite from one of his donuts. <sighs> I've gained five pounds since this all started. I can't help but stress eat. I lowered my binoculars as another car passed our spot. So you are stressed. He didn't reply, and his eyes remained on his hands. Did Jake make it necessary to kill her? He winced. I don't know exactly. She got our mask off somehow in the struggle, but he was the one who insisted we couldn't let her live after she saw our faces. He wiped donut crumbs away from his mouth. When I didn't want to do it at first, he got... scary. That's what I'd expected to hear. So we can assume he'll get scary again if we don't go through with this. Lifting my binoculars to peer at the factory ground some more, I watched callous bastard skull a worker whose shirt sleeve had gotten caught in an improperly tuned machine and torn off. Jake had already told us the kind of things he might be saying, and I could hear them now. Get back to work and be less clumsy next time. As expected, no one fixed the machine. The same worker continued to warily slide materials through it, this time with his other sleeve rolled up nearly to his shoulder. I might have asked Tom to look up some videos of what happened to workers who truly got injured in this way, but we hadn't brought our cell phones. They were basically live tracking devices. The more I'd learned about our society's soft secrets, the more I'd realized that we were all basically slaves to multiple invisible masters. Those who tracked our every call, email, text, and location were among the higher lords. These bosses at our places of work were actually the absolute lowest on the totem pole of the shit waterfall, and yet they took the brunt of our hate. Meanwhile, 95% of my productivity went to some faceless asshole shareholder living up in a mansion somewhere. We should have been allied with our cruel bosses against these unknown men. Why were we instead at odds? Making an excuse of having to piss, I walked a couple blocks and made an anonymous call from a payphone. My call would not bear fruit for a few days. For now, my lunch hour was over, and it was time to head back to work. I returned and said goodbye to Tom. Work was strange and different. My men were productive and happy, and we were all having a great time working in a way I'd never thought was possible. The office was supposed to be a place of quiet desperation and internal suffering in a thousand nebulous ways that could not be resisted. That was what we had been told all our lives. What we'd been shown every day of our careers and what television promised was the only way. Turned out, once incentives were aligned correctly and the team was all on the same page, work didn't have to be shit. <laughs> work didn't have to be shit. I sat at my desk and stared at the wall for a good 20 minutes as I repeated those words over and over in my head. If work didn't have to be shit, then why was the source of that universal cruelty that made hollow shells of modern men? Where did it come from? Why did it exist? It took nearly a week, but I managed to time our stakeout correctly. Tom and I sat on the low hill among the run-down buildings at the south of the factory while the inspector I tipped off came to take a look at the factory's many egregious violations. 
He's outside looking back near the river, Tom said excitedly. I think, yeah, he sees the illegal dumping, too. I grinned and took my turn on the binoculars. The inspector was a balding man in an aging brown suit, but he did not look happy. He stood alone with callous bastard while they both argued with sweeping hand motions. This would take care of Jake's boss, and there would be no need for a beating that I knew our third accomplice expected to end in death. Damn it, callous bastard, I muttered. We're trying to save your life here. Just face the music and find another job. Finally, the argument stopped. Callous bastard went back into the factory, slipped into his office, and then returned as casually as possible. Curious, I watched him hand over a brown envelope. What's he doing? Tom asked. My heart sank as I saw the inspector take it. The envelope's color matched his faded suit, and I immediately understood how factories like this one avoided cleaning up their act. The balding man pulled out and rifled through a stack of cash before hurriedly putting away in the side of his jacket. God damn it! He paid him off! Crestfallen, Tom asked. So, we really have to do this, don't we? I hated to admit it, but yeah. We had a clandestine meeting with Jake scheduled three nights later. At that bar an hour and a half from town, we again paid in cash and commiserated over the progress of the operation. Jake swallowed his first beer in a single breath and slammed it on the table. So how's the plan coming together, guys? I looked to Tom, but I knew it would be up to me to speak. It's coming together. I guess I had a concern. Uh, The first two ended with deaths. I'd like to avoid that if possible, since it was never the plan. Glowering, Jake stared us both down. My friend George had his left arm degloved six months ago because Callous Bastard refuses to pay for proper maintenance. You know what degloving is? Holding back the small urge to vomit, I nodded weakly. You know what kind of screams a man makes when he's degloved? Jake continued, his gaze haunting. Because I do. Tom covered his mouth and excused himself to get another beer. That's all right, buddy, Jake called after him with sincere permission. You don't need to hear this. He leaned closer to me and listed the 14 injuries and two deaths of the men at his factory had suffered in the last several years. I get it. We're men. We work dangerous jobs. But you know what rides my ass? You know what makes me violent? He accepted one of the three new beers as Tom returned. Taking a swig of it, he sighed darkly. Motherfucking callous bastard always profusely promises to fix things, and for months, they do get better. And then, he just kind of lets it slide once corporate attention moves on. What makes me violent is this little fucking speech I've heard half a dozen times. This was a tragic accident that could have happened to any one of us, so we all need to pitch in to keep safety standards high. No, bastard, it could not have happened to any one of us. It could have happened to us guys, actually on the floor, but not you, because you're safe in your little office. It might have been a bad time to spark the conversation, but it had already been on my mind. Jake, is he really who you're mad at? Should we be angry at the guy in corporate higher-ups to let him do that so he can get rich off your labor? He went dead and cold and just stared at me. And gulped. Like, what if Khaled Bastard dies and 
I'm not saying we're going to kill him, but what if they just replace him with another? And then the way he runs that place makes them more money, and that's all they care about. Tom cut in for the first time. You know how you could tell? Jake replied flatly. How? Go visit other factories your company runs, he explained, looking rather proud of himself. If they've each got their own callous bastard, then you'll know. Jake stood, then pointed down at each of us with a furious glare, and then, as we'd practiced, he walked casually away as not to make a scene. Our next meeting was two weeks away, but neither of us was sure whether he would be there. In the meantime, we stopped hailing his boss, and I dealt with slowly increasing pressure from above at work. Our numbers were up, and why were they giving me shit? I protected my men as best I could until the day of the next meeting came. That time we were on a balcony at a second-story bar downtown. It was dark and loud. Nobody would remember us. Fine, Jake told us, still sullen. You were right. There's a bastard for each factory. It's not his fault. Hell, they chose him because he is that way. We can't take it out on him. We both sighed. Awesome. Let's be done with this horrible misadventure. Oh, it's not over, he retorted. I went to bat for both of you, and we are stuck in this until it's even. Tom clutched his margarita close. But then what do you want us to do? All this started with the current CEO, he told us. His fists clenched. I want you to attack a rich asshole instead. I wasn't having it. Are you serious? He's probably got a security system, a big house, maybe even bodyguards. Tom, too, thought it was a bad idea. It'll draw a ton of attention. Nobody cares about poor people, remember? But they'll investigate the death of a rich person for years. Not this one, Jake countered. Trust me. It'll take months to do the legwork, I complained. I can't keep slipping off from work that long. Eventually, someone will notice. Jake shook his head. No. I spent the last two weeks figuring it out myself. He's already here. Tom and I looked at each other in surprise and then at the target of Jake's focused gaze. At the far end of the hip downtown bar, a peppered-haired older man sat with his arm around a thin young blonde girl that looked like she'd gotten in here with a fake ID. Turning back, I vehemently asked, What the hell is this? This is so stupid, Tom added fearful. We're going to get caught if we do it like this. Jake shook his head again. I've got all the tools we need in my car down the street. We just hang out, have a good time, and follow him when he takes that girl back to wherever. We make it look like a mugging, and that's it. Nothing to investigate. Are you coming with us? I asked, surprised. We're supposed to take turns. Fuck it, he muttered. This is big game now. It's all in. I'm doing this. He ground his teeth for a moment, and if you don't help me, I'll turn you both in. Whoa, Tom and I both replied, our hands up in a diplomatic pause. Fine. I wasn't that surprised. I'd more or less expected a last-minute power play like that. The only saving grace was that it looked like Jake had actually thought it all through. We sit beers for several hours while Rich Asshole tooled around with his dates and her gorgeous friends, he even danced for a bit on the floor. 
come on, man, have some respect. Or, of course, he wouldn't care. The world was his. He might even have owned the bar itself. That thought stunned me. I was one of the slaves used to the other people that went to places rather than owned them. The concept of owning an entire establishment shocked me to my core when I really tried to process it. I literally owned nothing. My place could be taken at any time, whether I made it a monthly payment or not. Same as my car, and I lived in constant servitude to afford these meager necessities. This guy had final say-so over buildings and bars. The whole idea was insane. By the time he finally left with his date, my fury likely matched Jake's. The three of us headed on down, quickly got our tools out of Jake's trunk, and caught up to Rich Asshole in an alley. He was drunk and headed towards his car in a parking garage up ahead. The angles were such that this was good as a place as any. We maintained drunken laughter and conversation right up till we were hitting him with pipes that we had hidden up our sleeves. His date leapt away, but remained frozen in shock. And you know what? Our laughter and conversation continued. Do you see that one bartender? I asked Tom as I struck down at Rich Asshole's bleeding forehead. Oh man, she was gorgeous, Tom replied, hitting the man's shaking legs. You guys are nuts, Jake said, cracking his rib. She was an eight at best. Beside us, his date slowly came back to her senses as she watched us beat him, and she came over, spit on him, and began kicking his unmoving body. Asshole! We shared a surprised, genuine laugh at that. She bent down carefully, pulled out his wallet, and ran off as quickly as our high heels would allow. And then we were walking. A few quick wipes, a few visual scans of each other, and we were clear of any obvious blood. The pipes, we slid back up our sleeves until we reached the car, and then we went home, burned those clothes, buried everything that needed buried, and went our separate ways. That was the first murder that I felt literally no guilt over. In fact, it felt like a tremendous victory. I'd managed to spare Cal's bastard's life in exchange for that of a systematic asshole whose own date had despised him. As far as we could tell, the police chalked it up to a mugging gone wrong like we'd hoped, and over the next few weeks, I watched for news of Jake's company. The new CEO promised to do things differently, and many managers and corrupt practices were rooted out. Cal's bastard himself would be out of the picture soon. It was a win for everyone. The problem with that kind of victory, though, is that you can never erase the memory of it. At work and at home, when things go wrong, you always remember that there is a viable ace in the hole if you really need it. Pressure on me from above at my company increased as the months wore on, and I thought often of the single remaining meeting the three of us had planned. One year from the last of our three murders, we were to meet four states over in a rundown bar in a highway exit town with a population of 500. This last meeting was supposed to be for comparing notes and handling any lingering problems, but as the full year approached its end, I was surprised to find myself hoping for a little bit more than that. Apparently, Tom and Jake had similar ideas. It's amazing how easy it is to commit murder once you know what you're doing. 
All you have to do is think about it from the perspective of those at the scene. They'll ask who might have done this. Their list will include friends, family, co-workers, anyone who happened to be around at the time, and anyone who was both on a national database and who left evidence behind. Getting away with murder is as simple as not falling into any of those categories. Our plan was straightforward enough. We each scheduled two events on the same Saturday night with four hours in between. We picked a target who was two hours away, and we went way over the speed limit on roads we checked out in the weeks beforehand for police activity. It was fine to speed on the way there because we hadn't done anything wrong yet, although the drive back would not have the same luxury. The thinking here was that we would have alibis with a four-hour gap, and no cop or jury would believe that we had somehow gotten a hundred miles away, killed a complete stranger, returned without being noticed, and resumed hanging out with friends. Like nothing had happened, all in under four hours. Even by our carefully prepared plan, it would be tight. Every facet had became crafted down to the second, and all this would be necessary if they somehow realized they should investigate us. The man in question was not THE CEO that had begun the drug price hike craze, but he was certainly on the bandwagon. None of us personally knew whose medicine had gone from $125 to $800 a pill overnight, and that was why he had been a suitable choice. He was a very good distance away, but still within range while also being completely unrelated to our lives. I think we whipped ourselves into a frenzy over this price hike thing and as a way to justify what we were doing. Looking back, if I really had to be honest with myself, I really just wanted to re-experience that power. At work, I was a beluggered manager, desperately trying to maintain the promise of a fulfilling workplace while sociopaths above pressured for more. Here, in my secret other self, men like that could simply be removed directly in a manner most satisfying. We blazed through the night at 110 miles an hour. Dark trees and a cloudy sky hit our beat-up old anonymous car, and we spoke little on the drive. We were all too focused on our own anticipation. A bit of payphone social engineering had paid off greatly here. Immoral Galger had forgotten to switch over his housing security system when his old credit card for bills had expired and his new one had come in the mail. He didn't know it, but his alarms were all offline. His wife would also not be home for quite some time, as we'd made a stop on the way and slashed one of her tires. With a racing pulse and gloved hands, I crept out of the back woods and carefully removed one of the panes from the rear door of the house. Reaching in, I turned the lock and let the three of us inside. We slipped into the darkened dining room to listen and assess the situation. It sounded like Emoral Galger was watching television in the living room, but it was important for us to get the jump. We had to be sure. For twenty minutes, we listened, waiting for him to make a sound. I wonder if I'd ever sat at home and watched television while oblivious to a murder a room over. A giggle sounded upstairs, and we looked at each other in alarm. Someone else was in the house. We moved back toward the door, intent on escaping, but a half-dressed brunette in her twenties stared at us in shock as we rounded the corner into the kitchen. We froze. She had a low and round glass of liquor in her hand, and she nearly dropped it. Tom raised a hand, and she reflexively caught it before it fell. 
The look on her face was that of absolute terror. What else was she supposed to feel when three masked men suddenly had her cornered? I'm just a working girl, she whispered, shaking mightily. He's upstairs. Please, I'll just go. Tom looked at Jake. Jake looked at me. I looked at her and nodded. Barefoot and crying, she silently ran out the back door. Before we had a chance to discuss what to do, we heard Gouger call down, Brunette working girl, what's taking so long? He ran down the stairs with enthusiasm, appeared before us in a flowing purple robe, and fell as Tom clocked him with a pipe. At the top of the stairs, blonde working girl shrieked down and ran the upper hallway. Jake cursed and charged up after her, but I stopped him halfway with a grunt. It's done, I hissed. Let's go. She's going to call the cops. Tom backed me up. Don't worry. We'll be out of here before then. We covered his head with the tarp we'd brought, and each of us hit him with our weapons until his skull had been reduced to mush. That was that. Leave the tarp and run, for it had been bought with cash from a major chain and never been touched by any of us. We'd even shaved our heads, worn shower caps for much of our preparations, and donned long clothing despite the summer heat. No hair, no skin cells, no blood. That was the plan. We were well on our way out of his property when a gunshot rang out. We turned to see headlight beams and immoral gouger's driveway. His wife had taken an Uber home. Her early arrival had allowed her path to intersect with the brunette working girl, who at the moment lay bleeding from a shot to the right shoulder. Finally, cracked wife screamed again and stalked closer down the driveway with her gun ready for another go. I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. Our careful plan had been an utter mess. There was no telling what cops would think now. A man had been bludgeoned to death in his home while his wife had just shot one of two working girls out front. The blonde one would claim three men had entered the home. The brunette would be dead in short order. Would investigators think we'd been hired by the wife? Maybe it'd be wrapped up neat and tidy better than any of us had expected. Except I couldn't help myself. Of the three of us, I alone knew the responsibility of stewardship over good people. Brunette working girl wasn't one of the men back at the job, but we had let her go, and she hadn't given us away. She was on our side now. My pipe finally cracked the wife's head, almost of its own accord. I was shouting too, but I can't remember what. All I remember is barely getting there in time to save brunette working girl from another and much closer gunshot. She lay curled up on the pavement, crying and holding herself against the pain. I walked toward her with concern as Jake slipped out the bushes and crumpled her skull. He looked at Tom. Go get the blonde. This shit's out of control. No witnesses. What the hell? Tom protested. How many people are we killing here? While I looked on in shock, Jake barked. The wife is going to kill them all anyway. We walked in on a mass murder in progress. Rather traumatized but still operating with desperate logic, Tom nodded and ran inside. I couldn't breathe. You just... Jake wrapped both brunette working girls and finally cracked wife's hands around his blood-soaked weapon and then carefully began arranging the scene to look like the wife had bludgeoned and shot all of them while taking a lethal blow to the head in the process. 
We realized we'd made yet another mistake when the horrified Uber driver began pulling away. With startling swiftness, Jake took wife's gun, aimed it with the manner of a practiced huntsman, and let fly. The car rolled a bit and crashed against a tree. Snapped out of my own state of numbness, I ran over there and checked on him. He'd taken the bullet in the back of the head and died instantly. His cell phone was still on hold with 911, and I carefully pressed the in-call button with my gloved thumb. Tom returned from upstairs with haunted body language. It's done. Did she call anyone? Jake asked, his eyes full of fire. He shook his head. Her phone was dead, and she didn't know where the landline was upstairs. Good. It's all set then. Returning to stand with them, I disagreed. To make the murder spree of passion story work, we have to take the tarp. Finally cracked wife wouldn't have used that. That means we have to drive back two hours with a blood and brain-soaked tarp in our trunk and then find a way to dispose of it without anyone noticing. Not to mention our plan to kill one immoral bastard just got five people killed. Jake moved closer and got more aggressive. With that woman on a shooting rampage, wouldn't they have died anyway? I hated to admit it, but... Yeah. Then we really didn't do jack shit. He stalked inside and returned with the roll-up tarp. The drive back was silent as the drive up, but for vastly different reasons. I simply couldn't process what had happened. I'd been an innocent boy once. I'd had my cheeks pinched and my grandmother and I had played with my cousins at family reunions. Could my aunts and uncles have guessed that I would one day be part of a mass murder? We should have stopped with three. We'd gotten away with it. This was insane. A state highway patrol car rode up behind us and then got over and passed at high speed. None of us dare move a muscle. I rolled down the window. The night was quiet, warm, and expansive. I needed the world to be larger than just me at the moment, and it was. Existence was more enormous than I could ever comprehend, and we were all just specks. That's what I had to tell myself. Those people had been specks. Brunette working girl might not have made it anyway. One gunshot could cause an infection if not properly treated, and I doubted she had health insurance. Yeah, she might have already been dying when Jake... I'm done, Tom said, unprompted, his eyes misty. I can't do this anymore. Jake turned to look at him. You nuts. This was your choice of target. We did it in rounds of three, right? I can't. I just... I can't. What? So we kill your target and then you bounce? Tom cried harder, but said nothing further. I didn't speak. I was acutely aware of the evidence in the trunk. I planned to make sure I was around for the disposal of every single piece. The tarp, our mask, our gloves, our very clothing. It was time I started taking my partners in crime seriously as their own kind of threat because I had the suspicion Jake had been thinking that way all along. It was only when we got home and after I faked my way through my second event with friends that night that the real impact of what we had done became clear. 
Local news had made mention of the apparent crime of passion, so sure, they'd bought our setup for the moment, but somehow we'd completely missed the fact that Immoral Galger had a 12-year-old daughter away at boarding school. She'd come back from abroad and found them the very next morning. One thing I knew to be true at a fundamental level, for any unforgivable sin, there would be three temptations. I'm not a biblical man, but I do know human beings. We have limited willpower and limited conscience. Give a random man or woman a chance to screw someone over for their own gain, and it's likely they'll actually refuse. The first time or two. It's only after they've been conditioned by the result of those choices that they see that there is no reward for being good. The structure they are imprisoned with doesn't care about them at all, and there is no punishment around the corner. I knew there would be three temptations. I didn't realize I'd already been through the first. What we've been doing before had been justified in some sense of the word. Violence is not an inherently evil thing in many philosophies, and we'd actually, against all odds, made the world a better place, because our actions were rare in a stagnant culture of rampant excess and deliberate unaccountability. Even that last night of mass murder hadn't really been our fault, had gotten beyond our control, had been fated to happen one way or another, with or without us, evil intent or not. I couldn't stop thinking about the 12-year-old daughter who'd come home to find a property full of bodies. I wanted to have children someday. What would I tell them? All secrets come out in time, especially to family. This guilt was my first temptation in reverse, a window on what was to come, a signpost before taking the ramp onto a highway of horror, and a warning about the unhappy rewards it might reap. And I resolved to regain control and end our murderous crusade in any way I could. But backing out of a murder pact is no simple thing. At any time, any of the group might incriminate the others if backed into a corner, and if any of us were implicated, we all were. In the same manner that we scoped out our victims to increase and maintain our control of the situation, what I needed was information. I began tailing Jake in my off hours. If he was hiding something, he was remarkably cool about it. In the interim before our next official meeting, I watched him go to his job at the factory, work all day, then sit around at home all night drinking beers. He ate little and only went to the gym occasionally, for his job kept him fit. It was his innate strength that gave him imposing aura and confidence. I wondered if there was some method of taking that away during our inevitable conflict. Numerous skills were needed. Over several weeks, I acquired pieces and machinery to construct a home brewery in my basement. I watched every video, read every guide, and experimented through every free hour. What I needed was a beer that tasted similar to Jake's usual brand, but with higher alcohol and calorie content. I tried different amounts of various sugars while following recipes found online. Certain sugars could also alter the color and body of the beer without affecting the flavor profile, but too high a sugar content led to something more akin to cider. I didn't have time to master it, but I could produce something close enough. 
After that, I bought dozens of bottles of his brand with cash, dumped them out, filled them with my high-calorie and high-alcohol homebrew, and then used a careful series of tools to recap them as accurately as possible. I had my doubts about my homebrew beer passing the taste test, but I finally decided to risk it as my time until the next meeting began to run out. Jake had a pretty consistent pattern with buying his groceries. He went inside with the perishables, which gave me a chance to dart over and open his trunk and swap out his beers for mine. Waiting and watching that first night, I shook with a thrill and a power I hadn't felt since getting away with our first murder. There was every chance Jake would notice. I was terrified. I was caught. But then, I thought about my own experiences with beer. When it tasted off, I didn't assume someone had replaced it with the intent to fatten me up and give me worse hangovers. I just assumed it was a bad batch, or maybe the recipe had changed since I'd had that beer. And on top of that, Jake didn't seem to drink because he enjoyed the flavor. He did make a confused rolling motion with his tongue as I watched through the window, but his first sip slid into his second and third without further incident. In two hours, he slumped on his couch and passed out some unknown bright movie on his television screen. It had worked. I felt high on electricity the rest of that night, until the flaws in Jake's unwitting perspective spoke to my own sense of paranoia. If I could follow him and replace some basic thing in his life that, without him guessing, could the same be happening to me? I kept my eyes sharp while acting otherwise normal. I pretended to do some cleaning in order to investigate every nook and cranny in my living space. I found nothing, but an idea I'd seen in my research possessed me. In the darkness of my home, hours after I pretended to fall asleep, I slid noisily along the floor like an inchworm and crept my way out behind my place until I managed to crawl under my car without being visible from any outside angle. In complete blackness, I gently touched every inch of the underside of my car. It still held latent heat from the day's drive, but I slid my hands and fingers within rough metallic spaces unseen, obsessively mapping the lay of the mechanical landscape above. My fingers met something small, smooth, and plastic, and I knew. The cops, the FBI, the NSA. If it had been any one of those agencies, we were doomed merely by suspicion, and they probably would have picked us up long ago. It hadn't been Jake, I'd been watching him, yes, but... He was also a man of physical threat rather than deception. Tom. <laughs> Motherfucking Tom. The snake in the grass, playing the meek member, hardly willing to do what was needed, but he'd killed that girl upstairs in that house all on his own. He'd cried after that, but tears could be faked. I couldn't take anything at face value anymore, and if he'd been tracking my car, he would know I'd been observing Jake. If he knew that and hadn't said anything... Then he had a hidden agenda to match my own. Was he tracking Jake too? Tom might have been tracking us out of self-preservation, but that was another assumption I wasn't about to make. I left the tracker in place to avoid tipping off that I knew. The night of the meeting came. We met at a restaurant in a hotel by the airport, for we'd realized that oftentimes crowds were safer than being alone. The restaurant served a few hundred new guests every single day. We would not be remembered. Tom chose the last, Jake muttered with a gruff expression under bloodshot eyes. My undermining efforts were working. And that turned to shit. 
I got a better target in mind. He turned his gaze directly against mine. The one coming down hard on your department. The vice president of your company? The hired gun that goes from company to company gutting things for profit. Something was off. I looked between my partners in crime. Why would you use your pick on someone I would love to see gone? And why not use it for someone you want dead? I got my reasons. I don't have to explain myself. Jake took a swig of his beer. Huh, tastes like shit today. A compliment to my advancing home brewing skills, I suppose. Alright then, I looked at Tom. But he was playing the same meek and worried role as always. Had Tom given Jake this idea somehow? It was uncharacteristically devious and our most physically imposing member. What's the plan? We were killing as a team now. No sitting out, but I felt safe enough by having never met or spoken to the vice president of my company directly. I was many layers of management down, and I knew nothing about him initially save for some second-hand rumors. If the police somehow considered me a suspect, I would just be one of those thousands at my level and distance from the victim. They couldn't and wouldn't investigate us all. This was my second temptation, and it was one which I was beginning to fail. I considered making a move before the night of the planned assassination, but the gnawing pain of seeing my men being worked harder and paid less every day kept me subtly delayed. This was my department, and we'd been doing a great job. If they would have just left us alone, we would have continued succeeding without suffering, but it was almost as if the corporate structure innately desired our pain. There was not enough attention or understanding from anyone higher up. There was no one below us to take part of our burden. There was only profit and the seeking of it, and we were less than nothing in the face of that. My soul hovered between light and darkness. What we were doing was wrong. I knew this and had been moving to end it. This delay to accommodate a self-serving murder was wrong. I knew this and delayed to allow it. While I hovered on the fence, we scouted, observed, and recorded. It took three months to pin down every single facet of Heartless Profiteer's rather busy schedule, but we managed to come to the holiday. Or, I should say, his holiday. According to his most recent change announced 4 p.m. on Thursday, us pawns would not be getting the Friday off for the long weekend. <laughs> oh, oh, you fucker. I felt bad about it before. I really did. But you fuck with a man's long weekend and you deserve nothing but acid and pain. Some things in this indentured world are still sacred. I worked through that Friday with a light heart, knowing his comeuppance would follow soon. I told my men not to worry, and that I was sure corporate would change its mind eventually. Saturday morning, Tom, Jake, and I headed up to the lake in question. A policeman actually pulled us over on one of the back roads, and we thought to call it off safe for his grin at seeing our fishing gear. Tom had suggested it, and I had acted as if I was surprised by his cleverness. The cops didn't check our license, which would have ended everything merely by involvement of our names, and he talked fishing game with Jake for a good five minutes before waving us to move forward on a damn fine Saturday. We thanked him kindly and drove out all smiles. Surprised at my own surprise at Jake's calm showing, I realized my continued undermining of his health was rearing its ugly head as dangerous instability that had made my opinion of his abilities change. 
Jake was red-eyed at times, often unkempt now. That day, he actually still seemed drunk from the night before, and he popped a beer, one of mine, as we approached the lake. Tom's eyes held more calculation and apprehension than I'd ever given him credit for. Is that wise? Jake grunted. We gotta look like we're on vacation in case anyone sees us, right? Nobody will see us. Yeah, and we won't beat a whole house of people to death either. Tom's expression sharpened ever so subtly, but he climbed out of the car without another word. He was still playing the bullied one. I could see now that Jake thought he himself was in charge, and that I had also thought that this entire time. I resolved to scrutinize our group's interactions even deeper, if I could. Something was very wrong here. The lake held a lively scattering of jet skis, pontoon boats, and swimmers, but it was no matter. The span of the beautiful natural bay was such that every massive cottage on its forested shores was virtually completely private. We couldn't hear anything but the distant whines of boat engines, and they certainly wouldn't hear a scream on the off chance we screwed up our surprise attack. One of the rear doors to the Palladio College was unlocked, for this was in the middle of nowhere and surrounded by other rich people. Crime was unthinkable. Crime would never happen here. I could see those thoughts on Heartless Profiteer's face as we quietly surrounded him in the kitchen. There was no need for stealth or immediate death. He was alone and doomed. He understood immediately. His linky form held tension, even fear, but not weakness. How much? Under a ski mask, Tom said. A million. Her white-haired and age-lined victim looked down at his bare chest and swim trunks. I don't have it on me, but done. Tom spoke again. Ten million. I think Heartless Profiteer suspected in that moment that we would not be swayed by money. Still, he negotiated. I don't have ten million in cash. I only have four. You'll have to make do with that much. No, Jake cut in laughing. I know what you're doing. Six million. The older man gazed around the three of us, gauging the tightness of our triangle, the viciousness of our weapons, and the chrome strength of our resolve. Five. Jake raised his brandished lead pipe. <laughs> I fucking knew it. He's probably sitting on a hundred million and thinks we're idiots, bargaining for his life with pocket change. I chimed in for the first time with my concern, which had now grown greater than my need to disguise my voice in case our victim somehow got away and sparked an investigation on all the company's employees. Focus up. It's not what we're here for. Heartless Profiter turned his gaze to me. I sensed you gentlemen might not be swayed by money. You've done well in cornering me here alone, but our time to negotiate is short. Perhaps there's something else you'd like. He nodded toward a picture on the kitchen counter. Tom looked to me and Jake with alarmed eyes set in black fabric. How had we not caught this? The old man grinned. My wife and I don't spend much time together on account of her being a gold-digging whore, but I certainly knew that when I married her. She does what I say, if you catch my meaning. That's our deal. Jake took a deep and slow breath. That's... It was. 
Heartless Profiter was married to... I couldn't believe it. Of all the goddamn women in the world it could have been, we'd stumbled into the cottage of a recognizable gorgeous actress. I could already see what was about to happen. Don't get distracted. Jake let out an alcohol-heavy huff. Dude, we could fuck recognizable gorgeous actress. Tom shook his head. It's too risky. It'll turn into a mess. He carefully did not say another so as not to inform our captive that we'd done this before. How long? Jake asked. Heartless profiteer checked his watch. It's waterproof, he commented with a smirk, referring to his watch that he was wearing with swim trunks. But she'll be here in 15 minutes. I knew Jake was thinking that he could take this prize and then we would just kill Heartless Profiter anyway, but he was drunk and likely not thinking about the secondary consequences. First, there was DNA evidence from that kind of activity that would get us caught. Second, we could have to kill her too if the situation went even slightly wrong. Third, the death of a gorgeous, recognizable actress would be a national goddamn sensation. We'd never been investigated yet, and this would surely blow up in our faces. And what were the chances that we'd walked into a cottage like this? As the scope of my sensibilities expanded, I realized, 100%. We were targeting the wealthy and powerful. They would all have assets such as she, and if not a trophy wife, then some other luxury or opportunity equally unimaginable. We were showing ourselves as small-time fools by being swayed by this. But I felt a sparking hatred as I thought about the fact that every single cottage on this bay housed rich old men boating with their families and banging women so beautiful that their mere existence in the physical world was a myth and fantasy to men like us. Lonely men. Solitary men. We worked to the bone each day in order to one day be worthy of an average woman. Lovely people, sure. Capable of emotion and intellect and inner beauty as much as any other quality person, but that level of oozing sexuality that... Magazines and television shows and movies bombarded in our brains with had always been denied us. She was a myth and a goddess to us, but a toy to this man, and all the men on this lake were like him. Beauty like that was just another resource they had monopolized. Even as I saw another way out of this, I itched to kill him. Heartless Profiteer laughed. Oh man, you guys play your part too well. I really thought you were going to kill me. He moved over and sat down on a stool with relief. This is creative, even for her. Tom, Jake, and I shared glances of confusion. He narrowed his eyes uncomfortably and spoke mainly to Tom. I'm fine with being in the room, but there's no male-on-male contact, alright? He thought we were sent by her to... Roleplay? That was our way out. I could navigate the situation so that nobody would have to die. There were too many risks and just enough reward to avert this murder. But God, did I hate him. My soul wavered back and forth. Finally, I said, Damn, you have to pretend like we're real home invaders when she gets here. It'll be ruined since you figured it out. Yeah, good, I told myself. Play into his ego. He held up his hands and put on an expression of mock horror. Oh no, I'm so fearful. 
The next quarter hour held the most awkward 15 minutes of my entire life. Heartless profiteer poured each of us some whiskey and we sat around with our ski mask on and talked weather, politics, and sports according to each of our highly strained random thoughts. Profiteer himself downed shot after shot and I began to get the idea that he was working up a resolve for the situation he only pretended to enjoy so as to keep this much younger wife. At that, I shook with restrained anger. I didn't want to see humanity in this man. Oh, shit. He ruthlessly pursued money to keep her, to remain worthy in her eyes, at least for a continued marriage. I hated him, but I also hated that I was beginning to understand him. Tom kept an eye on our whiskey glasses. They would not be left behind for evidence. The fancy red Lamborghini pulling up in the driveway elicited a collective sigh of relief from all of us, and we stared through high glass windows as a vision of blonde and breasts and butt emerged exactly in the way movies always portrayed it. <sighs> my god, that moment is seared into my memories. Up, he said, and we jumped back into our murderous triangle. She screamed the moment she walked in, but her stance relaxed in hidden ways as Heartless Profiteer said, they're going to kill me unless I let them sleep with you. She really was a fantastic actress. After that brief moment of confusion, she snapped back into the role of terrified victim perfectly. Tom and I stood back and watched as Jake took point. I had no idea what Tom was feeling, but I became increasingly unsettled by what sounded like, and looked like, a violent rape. On some layer it was, by deception, but I don't think Jake had even analyzed it that far. This was real to him, and she was doing a perfect play at making her end seem real too. It's no defense for our crimes, but the real world presence and attractiveness really did hold a sexual aura that had never graced our lives before. The heat, adrenaline, and testosterone I felt in those moments watching that were beyond anything I'd ever felt. Normal women simply could not evoke those feelings so sharply and powerfully. In a way, that was the raw power of women like recognizable gorgeous actress, in the same way that vicious wealth was heartless profiteer strength. Both of these people were made gods in comparison. He by standing out against a vast sharda of poor men, and she by rising above a sea of normal women. She was just as much a problem in our world as he. I didn't care anymore. I didn't participate, but I didn't stop Jake as he grew rougher and rougher. She urged him on until he was practically beating her half to death, but he, she never stopped. Despite it all, she was still in control of him and of us, and I so despised being controlled. We were fools, and heartless profiteer would squeeze every bit of life from me and my department's men in order to prop up this woman's altar. Having grown increasingly uncomfortable, or perhaps insecure with the treatment of his wife, he chose that moment to speak up. You know, I don't think my weapon found his neck and slashed halfway into it. He fell to the floor, dead before impact. Blood sprayed all over the kitchen, up my clothes and my mask, and I just breathed heavily and let the hate flow out of me. I had the presence of mind to grunt. Stop that shit, Jake. You look like an animal. She didn't scream. 
She just watched and sighed as Jake climbed up naked and confronted me. We would probably have had a fight there if she hadn't said, Oh, you idiots. Get out of here. I'll handle this. She checked his body and began wiping up blood. She frowned. What? He'll go on vacation more or less permanently. I'll control the money. There won't be peep in the media. It's a win-win. With rosy cheeks and full lips, she flashed us a smile. What, you think I actually liked this jerk-off? Tom and Jake stood behind me, now freed from the captivation of the dream of being in her presence. I freed us. For the moment, I was our leader. I held my knife to her alluring throats and ignored her nudity for what lay madness. You're an actress. You're acting. There's nothing I can say to convince you, is there? She said calmly. No sob story, no promise, no plan. I shook my head. You're too skilled. I failed my second temptation, but I was not truly lost until that third and final test. Leadership. Tom had found us. It had always been his idea. He was the sociopath, not Jake. He'd manipulated us from the very start, letting us tighten our own nooses while offering necessary manipulation, but now that was over. He and Jake had shared a moment of weakness and nearly allowed us to fail. Tom knew that and wordlessly promised to follow me as long as I followed his initial objective. He and I created a monster together in Jake. The man was a red-eyed and violent drunk that had no idea we had both run secret agendas against him. If he found out, he would kill us. If he didn't find out, he would move further down the path he had tasted today. This was a man who'd felt the evil of sexual violation, and judging by the way he had taken power to the murder, he was going to need to be reined in by a strong leader who used willpower rather than deception. These men needed someone to lead them, for they were more dangerous unbridled than not. A murderous sociopath and a violent abuser without focus, without cause, for as I saw them, our crusader's righteous cause had always come from me. I was a wellspring source of my kind's latent fury at wrongdoings, unjust and immoral, and that fury needed direction. I was fitting that. In the rotation, it was now my turn to choose the next target. My first act as leader was to not kill recognizable gorgeous actress. There were so many complications to such an act, and she stood to benefit immensely by the death of her husband, something she'd been secretly hoping for anyway. I let her stand. Put on some goddamn clothes. And don't wear makeup around us. No more masks. That goes for all of us. All of us? She asked. She began to wipe away her makeup and reveal her bruises, but she had already taken her mask off in more ways than one by revealing the true darkness of her nature. Tom slipped off his ski mask and breathed deep air purified by lungs by fellows who finally knew what he was, for he might have had a different brain and different emotions, but he was still driven by the need for companionship like any other human being. He now had it. With my blessing, Jake slipped off his ski mask and looked at his hands, flexed them, tested the strength, and looked to the gorgeous naked woman in our midst as some sort of idol for that which he desired to take from this world. He would be given it within my imposed limits. I removed my mask with the feeling of ascending from dark waters and bursting forth into the light. 
I'm David. An average name for an average man, for that is what we were. Nobodies. Fighting for all of our fellow nobodies. That's why I write. To confess and to inform. We're fighting with you and for you. I kept my eyes locked on her dazzling blue irises to pull out the truth of her intent. I could still hear boat engines in the distance, and this bay populated exclusively by the wealthy and powerful. Now tell me, how do you feel about your neighbors? She grinned sincerely. I approached the wide windows and looked out upon the nature the way the rich saw it. From high on the hill, luxurious grass ran down to a clean shore and a vast glimmering domain of opportunity. Unsuspecting little ants moved about on the water and the sands, oblivious to what awaited them. Well then, let's begin. <laughs>